You're listening to Secrets of Data Analytics Leaders. Our data scientists and our data engineers, or platform engineers, tend to thrive and get very um, protective over the sense of autonomy. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Jeff Magnuson, Vice President of Data Platform at Stitch Fix. Jeff leads a team responsible for building the data platform that supports the company's team of 80-plus data scientists, as well as other business users. That platform is designed to facilitate self-service among data scientists and promote velocity and innovation that differentiate Stitch Fix in the marketplace. Prior to Stitch Fix, Jeff managed the data platform architecture team at Netflix, where he helped design and open source many of the components of the Hadoop-based infrastructure and big data platform. Jeff holds a PhD from the University of Florida, where he focused on database systems implementation. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Uh, thanks a lot. It's great to be here. Uh, so you wrote a blog that circulated widely in Silicon Valley titled, Engineers Shouldn't Write ETL. In that blog, you wrote, for the love of everything sacred and holy in the profession, the data engineer or ETL engineer should not be a dedicated or specialized role. Uh, those are pretty strong words. What made you come to that conclusion? And what should data engineers do if not ETL and data prep? So I think with with blog posts and um, uh, blogs in general, some amount of uh, clickbait element comes to play. And so, you know, I'll admit, you know, those are very strong words and very opinionated. Um, uh, but, you know, there, there's shades to that, right? So my real intent with that blog post was um, to kind of highlight an occurrence of the thinker-doer problem that I think crops up in many data science departments. Um, and what that looks like is the departments organize in a way that basically requires several handoffs um, down a pipeline to accomplish any, any kind of data science or algorithmic work. So, you know, data gets acquired by data engineers and it's handed off to data scientists based on some, you know, spec or requirements that the data science scientists need to accomplish their work. Data scientists prototype, build models, um, you know, have ideas and, you know, those things eventually get productionized into some form of um, data product that then gets handed off to a, you know, product engineer to, to implement. And, you know, the problem with handoffs like that um, is that they create a coordination cost just kind of by the nature of handing off and having to coordinate between several groups of people. Um, and what I found in my experience is that the motivations and the roadmaps between those, those groups of specialists are seldom well aligned, right? So the data scientist is trying to, you know, innovate and quickly test things out um, into the product. The production engineer is really trying to optimize uptime and, you know, latencies to, to the client and to juggle, you know, a huge amount of workload from, you know, possibly several data scientists. And the data engineers are trying to build these robust data pipelines that meet the SLA of like kind of an aggregate group of needs. Um, and, and it's hard to align those things. Um, I think a lot of it's based on a notion that ETL, data wrangling, data engineering is hard and it requires a specialization to do it well. 
Um, and you know, certainly for companies like a Facebook or a Google or a Twitter, you know, I, I wouldn't argue that you know that's the case for you know a lot for a lot of use cases there where there's a huge data volume that needs to be handled. But for most companies, I, I don't actually think it's the case that it's that hard. And I'd rather focus you know, good, strong engineers on building tools and abstractions to make ETL data movement and data science easier versus having those folks deployed on tightly engineering each specific data pipeline that needs to get developed. And so by creating those tools, that in turn, you know, empowers data scientists to take full ownership of their pipelines from data acquisition to um, productionization, and you know, then they can control their iteration cycles, um, and you know, that often increases velocity. They're also in control of the requirements that they are pushing out, right? To you know, be able to make trade-offs, maybe if um, you know, it's going to take an extra 100 hours to acquire like an additional field of data or to add an additional feature to their model, right? They're able to very quickly make the trade-offs to see, okay, is it worth it to do that? Is it worth it to support that in production? Or, you know, should I not do that and push to production and get things tested earlier? Um, and having that kind of freedom, I think, actually makes you know, both sides happier, um, as, as well as, you know, increases the iteration speed and velocity and creates an environment of innovation. Okay, so that that's pretty radical thinking, uh, rethinking the roles of a data engineer and a data scientist. So let's, let's go through each of those. You know, we started with the data engineer. So if they're not creating those pipelines, what are they doing? So I think, um, Really, it's a notion of just not having the traditional data engineering role and merging it um, with a data science role. And so, um, at least at Stitch Fix, where so we have data platform and we have full stack data scientist, who is a combination of data engineering and data scientist. Um, and a lot of the data, the traditional data engineering um, expertise, gets pushed onto data platform. And I think uh, you know a lot of companies have like an infrastructure group or a data platform group that um, you know is tasked with maintaining the infrastructure. And I think what it means is that we push that responsibility kind of up the stack and make that role a little bit harder, right? So rather than building that infrastructure and making it easy to use for a small group of specialized data engineers then you know, our data platform folks are tasked with um, making that environment easy to use and performant for our data scientists. And so that requires a very different tool set um, and you know, support for a breadth of um, skill sets and uh, levels of engineering expertise that most traditional platforms probably wouldn't support. Right, so, so let's look at that platform in practice, what does that look like? What, what are they building to empower the data scientists to be a full stack data scientist, as you say? So our platform is 100% deployed on AWS. Um, it's a combination of uh, Spark, Presto, and a bunch of containerized um, ECS uh, Docker, Docker tasks. Um, 
And, and I don't think in practice it looks like those pieces don't look so different from um, a lot of other big data environments. It's, it's really like the focus on like the one level up that um, starts to differentiate a bit. And so um, self-service becomes kind of a primary uh, focus of any kind of like API or um, tool set that we would push up, right? And uh, a lot of times those require guardrails, right? So uh, when you've got a group of data scientists often they're vertically focused on, on problems that need to be solved for the business, right? So they're full stack, they're trying to, you know, end up building like some kind of analysis or data product or model um, that's gonna solve a problem in the business versus the more traditionally horizontally deployed data engineer who's, you know, just trying to focus on creating a well cohesive and um, performant data model for the data scientist. And so, you end up kind of having this tragedy of the commons thing that um, gets developed where uh, all of that core infrastructure is, you know, shared, right? Like there are clusters of machines that um, jobs are deploying on and, you know, things need to be scheduled, things need to um, go out and execute and, you know, meet some SLAs. And so um, when you don't have the horizontal group of engineers who are, you know, deployed to make sure that, you know, things are scheduled in a way that um, those SLAs get hit, then, you know, you've got to satisfy, like, these verticals kind of working independently. And, you know, one of the things that we've had to build into the platform to, to guarantee that is um, isolation guarantees, for example. So um, we make it impossible that, you know, one group of data scientists job is going to clobber and take all the resources from another, right? We um, build into our self-service APIs um, uh, the ability to request and guarantee uh, resources get granted. And one of the things that makes that pretty easy for us is running on AWS and, um, you know, versus a data center, AWS is, at least for our scale, infinitely elastic. So, you know, we're able to spin up um, uh, the, the number of containers or the number of nodes on our clusters that um, each job needs to succeed and we can kind of guarantee that it's going to meet an SLA because we can, you know, push it into an area where it's not going to impact other things. You know, also satisfying kind of the, the, the needs of our data scientists, uh, maybe not being as accomplished engineers or focused on that engineering task day in and day out um, like a data engineer would be you know, some guide rails in assessing data quality or, you know, sanity checking of, of schemas or, you know, enforcement of that. We focus some tooling there. But honestly, what I found is that in the majority of cases, just providing visibility into how things are performing, um, alerting when things start to run longer than, than normal, right? Uh, alerting to the number of resources you're using for any kind of given job. Those are powerful things. And so, uh, you know, one of the tricks that we've we've used for several years successfully is to publish leaderboards, right? So, you know, these top ten lists or um, you know lists of the most uh, expensive jobs will get published every week, right, to the department, and people will see like actually the cost of um, the jobs that they're running, and they can self-police to make sure that it's worth it, or you know that they're uh, responsibly using the right slice of the pie. 
And you know, just providing that level of visibility has solved a lot of problems for us where um, you know, if things are silently taking like 20 hours of compute time every day, right? But you know, they, they end up completing when they need to complete. They're just marvelously inefficient. Um, it's really easy not to see that unless it gets pointed out to you. Um, and you know, data scientists typically are less curious about that by nature uh, than a than a data engineer would be, who you know probably has you know those sort of efficiency concerns uh, ingrained in them a little bit more through you know education and experience. All right, so this is pretty interesting. You're taking the data engineering role and you're pushing some of it down onto the data scientist and you're moving the data engineer upstream to build uh, a self-service platform, self-service for the data scientists to build these vertical pipelines themselves uh, <clears throat> without getting into trouble when they deploy them on the cluster or use the cluster to, to build them and model them. Uh, is, that, is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's a fair summary. Good. So. Now, let's go to the data scientist. Uh, if their role is expanded, uh, how, <laughs> how do they survive without a data engineer feeding them data and putting their code in production? I guess you'll say it's the platform, but in, in reality, does that, does that truly work, work out? And do you trust a data scientist to put their code in production without a data engineer? I mean, we we definitely do trust them to push their code into production without a data engineer. Um, and and I mean, you're right. I'm going to say that it's the platform, but but I will assert that you know when you so we we put more resources onto building out um, our platform and the level of abstraction that it provides than uh, we would probably put if it was really just put in place to service uh, the, the data engineers building those pipelines. And so, uh, you know, we try to make it as easy as possible to develop these things. Uh, when we see common patterns or um, pieces of the platform that can be put into place that don't require um, a high amount of iteration or a business logic, right? So basically, the charter that I've given uh, my team is to build and own as much as possible for the data scientists, but, but still guaranteeing that you can not get in the way of their iteration cycle, right? So basically, like, guaranteeing that you're going to avoid a handoff of requirements and concerns. And so I actually think there's a whole lot that you can build and abstract um, up, up the stack, right? So, you know, one of the things that Citrix um, does and has done for a long time is create this uh, kind of machine and human uh, based recommendation system, right? So we recommend to personal stylist clothing that uh, we think is the, the most appropriate um, for, for clients and uh, the, the personal stylist um, consumes those recommendations and kind of has the final say in uh, curating the group of clothes that we're gonna send in a fix to our clients. And you know we we've been doing that since day one of data science at Citrix, and it's well understood the shape of what a recommender um, uh, is, is going to look like in our environment and the type of models that are going to serve them out, um, as well as like the latency requirements and kind of concerns uh, in in serving and data quality concerns in serving the, the the stylist. And so there's a high degree of tooling that you know guarantees that when code gets 
pushed into a production environment that's going to serve recommendations to a stylist that it can meet uh, data quality guarantees and latency guarantees and you know degradation concerns and APIs and it's able to scale and report the correct metrics to our systems. Um, so basically, like there's a much tighter interface that our data scientists are um, implementing when pushing that code, but they still have the autonomy over the math, which is really what we're trying to get to, right? Like they're trying to iterate on those models and um, the type of machine learning techniques that we deploy into production, they don't really care about how um, the machinery is scaling up those recommendations or you know monitoring them. And so platform takes care of that and it kind of guarantees that the quality um, of, of the code is uh, up to, to standards and it's going to you know uh, raise hell when it isn't through uh, alerting and waking people up through on-call. Um, and it's going to again provide like a high degree of visibility into how things are performing. Um, but we're not going to get in the way of the math um, or the iteration cycle of, of our data scientists. Um, and we try to apply kind of that principle uh, to, to every other piece of our stack and our other data products that, that we're developing it as well. So, you know, I think, I think as things become more understood, they can become uh, more and more highly abstracted. But another thing that's important to realize, and I think it gets lost in a lot of these handoff processes, is that data science is often experimental and highly iterative in nature. Um, and so the quality of code that's only going to be around um, in a production environment for a few weeks before it gets rewritten is probably less important than the quality of code that's going to be in production for a long time and iterated on and you know enhanced by a larger team of um, software engineer and, and developers. And so we, we don't necessarily enforce that, that code gets tightly engineered when it's, when it's going to be a little more transient in nature. Um, we focus more on you know, the, the qualities of the APIs, right? So if there's a SLA behind a, an API or a product that we're pushing to the business, then you know, the platform gets involved to guarantee that there's like degradation paths uh, if code fails, it's easy to roll back. We have a high degree of visibility onto the data products. Um, and you know, there's like a testing pipeline to guarantee that you know, code is meeting the minimum bar before it gets pushed into a production environment. So let's talk a little bit about the impact of this approach on the people themselves. So if we're kind of changing the data engineer's role do they disappear? Do they move into the platform team? I assume you need fewer of them. Is that true? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think it's true that we need fewer of them, and that's because some amount of the data scientist time is being taken by you know doing the data engineering, right? So um, it's not that there's necessarily less effort happening to engineer data. It's just that we're not specializing into it, and so we don't have uh, that differentiation and role. We do have some folks on the platform team that, that come from a more traditional data engineering background, and I think that you know that helps uh, to kind of partner with data scientists when they hit tricky data modeling problems, right? They have a resource to go to to help them out. Um, and it helps to inform the types of APIs and abstractions that we need to build to make this stuff easier, right? So I, I mean, I think that's the 
the place that a data engineer would find on the data platform team is, you know, being able to leverage the knowledge of what data engineering takes to, you know, help be a good advisor and partner to the data scientists as well as build the right um, abstractions. And then you look at our data science teams, you know, some of our data scientists have more engineering experience than others, um, and it really kind of varies from team to team, um, the amount of data engineering or kind of production uh, engineering expertise that is required to be successful in those groups. But for the most part, you know, we're able to take in data scientists and, you know, as long as they've got a decent uh, background in, in coding, um, teach them the, the right skills to be successful in our environment. So does every data scientist thrive in this environment or do you find that you lose some because they don't want to be full stack? They don't want to do the data engineering. I mean, certainly our environment favors a mindset and, and it's the same with like platform engineers too. Like some people, you know, really don't want to build these self-service tools that empower the data scientists to do the data engineering tasks, right? Like it, it is, what's the right word? It's a divisive kind of thing, right? Like some, it's very political um, in a way. Some people would prefer a department where, you know, we, we do specialize our data engineering. And so I think, you know, we do, we do lose, lose those folks that, that have a differing mindset. Um, but, you know, what we found is that a lot of our data scientists, when e even if they're not sure when they come in, and the same for our platform engineers, um, as long as they're open-minded to to give the the environment a chance, uh, you know, we don't hear a lot of complaints. You know, certainly, like we're open to debate whether there are you know needs that have evolved that need to be specialized um, or or not, and those debates do occasionally crop up, but. For the most part, uh, our data scientists and our data engineers or platform engineers tend to thrive and get very um, protective over this sense of autonomy, right? So like they see some clear benefits through not having to kind of negotiate handoffs. So I think, you know, people with like a little more entrepreneurial mindset, um, engineers that are comfortable with a high degree of ambiguity in a lot of cases, and data scientists as well, I think they they tend to thrive. Um, where it's maybe a little more challenging is where people um, want to go deep into you know a highly technical problem or um, want to do like more research oriented data science. Sometimes you know focus if 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 you want to focus on just a certain area of the stack and not um, learn the skills required to kind of go full stack, then then it's then it's more challenging to fit into our environment. I would imagine that the data scientists are, are much more vested in the outcome since they're building it from end to end. Is that true? Yeah, I think there's a much higher degree of ownership and accountability when we're able to give end-to-end um, -end ownerships to the data scientists. What do you think are the trade-offs of this self-service approach? Are there any times when it would make more sense to use the specialist model or the assembly line model like most companies do? Um, I mean, for sure, I think there's trade-offs with the approach, uh, and I, I don't think it is meant for every occasion uh, or even every department. And so uh, in designing our department the way that we did, uh, you know, we, we, we did make some very conscious trade-offs. And so 
you know, what we're trying to optimize for is velocity, fast iteration speed, and you know, an environment of innovation. And you know, if you're optimizing for something, that means you're you know, not optimizing for something else. And so you know, we're achieving those things at the expense of technical efficiency and technical quality in a lot of cases. So um, even in our environment, as pipelines and data products mature, specialization can start to make a lot of sense, right? And so, you know, you've got like this maturity and adoption curve where, um, you know, you eat a lot of the low-hanging fruit and then, um, you know, iteration slows. And so, you know, once, once things mature and the quality and reliability benefits that we can obtain um, outweigh kind of the hit that we're going to take to iteration, then we tend to build further and further up the stack. And you know, a specialist can come in and solve a problem once uh, and be done versus you know, having that handoff. And so, so you know, even in our environment, uh, it makes a lot of sense there. Uh, and the, the truth is that switch hooks can get away um, with the self-service model uh, a lot easier than a lot of other data science-focused companies. Uh, and the reason for that is that Citrix doesn't have a huge uh, breadth of end-user-facing data science components, right? So, for for example, our recommendations go to our personal stylists who are employees. Uh, they don't go to our end-users. And you know, most other data products at, at Citrix follow a similar model where they power internal tools and processes, but not um, directly user-facing ones. And that gives us a little more time to correct faults when they crop up and, you know, a higher tolerance for um, periods of higher latency, for example, or downtime into an internal tool, right, is um, less uh, Im impactful to the business than downtime of um, a, a user-facing one. And so, you know, a good example of that is if latency spike um, on our recommendation APIs and our stylists have to wait you know, 500 milliseconds a second um, to, to get recommendations uh, for a, a fix that they're styling, we can tolerate that. You know, it's not ideal, but we can tolerate it. Whereas, um, you know, if a client has to wait that long for an API call to complete that's part of rendering um, recommendations into a web page, there's a material impact to, um, to the business. And so, um, you know, when, when you've got those more user-facing concerns or, you know, uh, APIs and things that can't tolerate faults, then then specialization um, makes a lot more sense. So, like some obvious areas there where I probably wouldn't advocate strongly for this model, although I'd I'd love to explore it. Um, but like you know, think about like high speed trading or ad tech um, performance requirements. There are fairly obvious, and it's totally understandable where you'd want to put tighter controls on pushing into production. Great. Now you guys just pushed uh, some code in, out into the open source community, uh, an API called Flotilla. Tell us what that does and why someone would use it. Sure. Um, you know, really excited to to have the team open source Flotilla, um, and happy to have a chance to kind of advertise it today. So you think about you know a large portion of the work that that happens, I think, in most data science departments is going to be batch-oriented. So, you know, data gets aggregated, models get trained, um, featureization 
Uh, a lot of those are batch-oriented tasks. And at Stitchfix, we use two platforms for batch execution, um, Spark and Docker on ECS. So most data wrangling and movement happens on Spark. Um, and for us, most of our uh, machine learning and model training happens inside of Docker containers. And so you know, especially given our um, self-service model and our use of containerization for batch execution, which I feel um, isn't necessarily super mainstream. I think containerization for service deployment is you know, well adopted at this point for batch execution, less so. Um, so some level of abstraction needed to be developed uh, to manage the, the execution of those batch tasks. Uh, and in particular, the, the execution of our um, Dockerized tasks. Um, and so, you know, there's concerns that we wanted to abstract over there, like launching and parameterizing jobs, um, uh, making sure that they execute in the correct environment with the correct um, resource allocations, monitoring their, their status for success or failure, being able to queue them up, uh, being able to retry them. And so that's basically what Flotilla is. It's our job execution service. So if you as a data scientist, or I mean, heck, uh, even a lot of platform tasks run on top of it. Um, if you've got a batch-oriented uh, task of work that needs to execute, um, we're going to execute that in a in, in some sort of container in our environment, um, and Flotilla is going to help abstract that. So it abstracts over ECS. Um, it makes the details of containerization um, fairly invisible to the end user. Uh, especially in that batch job context. Um, and so it's going to handle the job launching, the, the queuing, the resource allocation, and the monitoring for you. So is, is the, uh, this something that the data scientists would use? Or you know, the, what information comes through the API is, is, is directed to them or someone else? Any, any type of work that needs to execute uh, in, in our environment is going to execute on top of Flotilla. And so um, you know, our data scientists interact with it on a day-to-day -day basis through um, uh, you know, command lines and some abstractions that we put on top, right? So like you know, Flotilla run my uh, job that I've defined with this level of resources um, and these parameters. Um, and so, you know, that's that's kind of the abstraction that data scientists are gonna gonna interact with when they're scheduling things. So we've got um, an Airflow-like scheduler that we've developed, and when you're putting a task into that um, uh, scheduler environment, right? Like, really, it's pointing at Flotilla to execute, you know, each individual task of work. Um, and so that's typically how our data scientists see it, right? Is like you know, scheduling this kind of production workflow to, to execute um, on top of um, Flotilla. Um, we use it for other things as well, honestly. Um, we even use it to, to execute um, sort of like short-lived or ad hoc tasks. So, you know, we've got tools built on top of it that data scientists use to allocate like notebook environments, so uh, Python or RStudio type. Um, notebooks to do some uh, research and you know figuring out um, doing analysis of data or you know starting to productionize some jobs um, and so it's useful for a wide variety of things um, uh, some of it is interacting directly with the flotilla GUI um, 
or, or command line for the data scientists, and then you know some other fancier things um, happen through platform abstractions and, and tools that we haven't open sourced yet, but um, are, are built um, on top of that to, to make certain other things easier for our data scientists. So where can people get Flotilla? If you go to um, github.com slash stitchfix slash flotilla dash OS, um, that's the GitHub repo. Um, also, if you just Google um, flotilla stitchfix, it'll take you, um, honestly, this is what I do when I'm trying to get there is I just Google it. But there, there is like a stitchfix.github.io uh, slash flotilla dash OS um, web page that's kind of a, a nicer landing page with some screenshots and links to um, uh, some, I, I, I think, pretty nicely developed documentation um, and API specs for the, um, for the product. Um, and so highly encourage people to check it out. We've, we've got it all um, able to be set up in about five minutes um, if you um, clone the repo and follow kind of the quick start instructions um, to run it in a local environment on your laptop so you can kind of experiment with it and, and try it out. Well, terrific. Uh, well, Jeff, thanks for sharing uh, all of your insights uh, about this new self-service model for data science work, uh, the, the role of a platform in that environment, and, and of course, uh, your new API, Flotilla, that people can download. Thanks for joining our show. Absolutely. My pleasure. Um, always love to talk about this stuff. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe. If you want more content from business intelligence to data management to data science, browse to the Eckerson Group website at eckerson.com.